Pierre, I'm on our Defending your right to speak and to listen. This is the Free Speech Union Podcast. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from the Free Speech Union. My name is Jonathan. I'm part of the team here. And today we are going to be discussing NetSafe's proposed online safety code. This is a consultation process that they are running at the moment on a draft code that they released, uh, which will invite voluntarily digital platforms to uh, submit themselves to these criteria. And that's great news in some ways. Online harm is a very serious issue in many ways uh, in our time and day. But it is also concerning to see digital platforms enabled and possibly even required to um, really increase their sensorous tendencies. And so we're just going to unpack our concerns around that and the submission that we have made to NetSafe. We're joined today by Annie O'Brien. Uh, she is the digital editor for the a much anticipated new independent media venture, the platform, which I understand uh, Sean Plunkett is spearheading. Annie, are you able to tell us a little bit about the work that you guys are going to be doing just quickly before we get into this NetSafe stuff? Yeah, sure. Um, look, we are very excited and, and can't wait to go live. Uh, the platform, as you say, is Sean Plunkett's project, and it comes from uh, basically an understanding that we need independent media spaces. Um, we need somewhere we can foster zero tolerance to cancel culture and intolerance. Um, and we don't have a political leaning except towards freedom in general. Uh, so we'll be supporting contributors from across the political spectrum. I know I won't agree with all of them and neither will Sean, but that's irrelevant. Um, it's about creating a space where different perspectives can be heard. Um, and we'll be launching um, partially uh, with our written pieces and podcasts first, and uh, then we'll be bringing in the live talk back a little bit later on, hopefully in March, just depending on um, some supply chain issues. Uh, but yeah, we're very excited. That's fantastic news. We, we were just discussing before we went live here, uh, just you guys view yourselves as as renegades in, a little bit there. And, and I think um, that's quite exciting, you know, just from a free speech perspective, the opportunity to, to facilitate that conversation, to have the discussion, to let people be heard. It's great news um, in a media landscape that maybe at times lacks that a little bit. Now, we're also joined by the Free Speech Union Council member, Stephen Franks. Uh, Stephen is a former member of parliament and a prominent Wellington uh, lawyer. It's great to have you today with us, Stephen. I wonder if you could kick us off um, just around some of the objections that the Free Speech Union has voiced to this code. What's your take on the code in general and, and what are some of the strengths and weaknesses that are coming with it? Look, I, I boil it down with a, an example. I, I think stories can sometimes be a, a bit of a trap, but the, the, the biggest example for me is the way that the elite consensus emerged against the theory or fear that the COVID was the product of a lab mistake, of uh, the escape of, 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 of a restructured um, organism from the lab in Wuhan. That rapidly became something that the great and the good decided was um, a racist assumption, anti-Chinese, uh, they automatically assumed that because Trump started to espouse it, that uh, anyone of any moral virtue would denounce it and and deplatform or cancel people who persisted in in pointing up the questions. Uh, so I just use that because it's probably the most prominent and most uh, recent 
situation where something that now looks uh, very well established, uh, very serious of implications worldwide that could affect um, the the futures of literally millions of people uh, if that kind of uh, conduct um, goes unexposed and if the PRC, the Chinese government, <coughs> believes that with threats and by enlisting elite consensus opinion, they can squelch uh, anything in the, in the media that they don't like, uh, that is really, uh, um, it's an end to the fond hopes of those of us who welcome the internet that it would democratise communication and that it would ensure that um, the powerful could never suppress unwelcome news, that could never suppress exposure of, of misdeeds and that we would we would be um, much more equal in our access to information. The internet has done all of that, um, but the, the NetSafe code um, is really, um, it's very clearly the language, the way it's framed, the absence of protections, uh, just make it clear that this is the elite fighting back. They've never liked the idea that the hoi polloi can be disrespectful to them. They've always wanted to um, squelch um, very unwelcome exposures. I mean, they use nice words for it. They talk about, I don't disagree with your right to say it, but I don't like the way you say it and it's offensive and it hurts and you could be more polite and all, all sorts of ways of framing their preference for shutting up those who are outside the, the consensus circle. So I'm, I, uh, I, we can go into the detail, but really if people want to um, look at it, they need simply um, go online and find the proposed code and then work through and say, how would we ensure that this wasn't used by um, by the the, the major organisations to justify um, decisions to avoid upsetting China, uh, mm, whether mm. they're commercial masters or political masters? And, and, and so you, you look through the code, there is just nothing there to do it. You're pointing to um, some political implications there. So these major uh, international digital platforms, whether it be Meta or Twitter or Google, um, have to take into account uh, geopolitics in many ways. But but even um, on a lower level here in New Zealand, this code in many ways would um, would be politicised or could be politicised and weaponised by activist groups that then force these uh, these entities into into taking down content because of their particular agenda, right? So whether it is whether it is um, those who want to shut down conversations around COVID, or those who want to shut down conversations around gender or or other um, contentious issues like this, where uh, safety and harm can be impugned, there is suddenly a tool there to force others to act. Annie, you've had a lot of experience in this space with just some areas um, of of ideology that you come from that that are particularly dear to your perspective, and and they stand in contradiction to some other people's values. Fair enough, that's, that's free speech for you. But um, what has been your experience in the way that you've been attacked online and the way you've had information removed? Uh, well, I'd start by saying that the, the, um, one of the core things we need to consider in this is that the concept of harm is deeply subjective. So what I consider harm will not be the same as what you consider harm. 
Um, and I've learned that when I talk about women's rights, for example, groups like Gender Minorities Aotearoa and Action Station will claim that that is harmful. So for me, depending on the uptake of this code, um, it represents a real threat to my freedom to speak about things I care about. Um, I guess for me, I see it as um, probably being influenced by the same kind of wider group of people who have also weaponized um, health and safety laws, for example. So another um, uh, cause which we can definitely agree is um, appears and probably is well-intentioned. We want people to be safe at work, um, and so we don't want them to, um, you know, to be exposed to undue harm. And and so there was there's been a real move to. Um, bring in new codes and of conduct and all that kind of thing. And, and to an extent, um, that has worked really well, particularly in, in environments where um, it's physical harm that they're worrying about. However, what, what happened to uh, me and um, my group um, a couple of years ago now, Speak Up for Women, uh, was we were deplatformed from Massey University from, from holding a... Um, a talk um, that was going to be held in the evening and during um, holidays, so no students around. Um, basically, the the governance at the university kicked up a fuss. Um, they brought in lawyer Linda Clark um, and they used health and safety to argue that our mere presence, regardless of uh, our people being there to be exposed to our words um, was was harm um, to their students and their staff. And so we were prevented from speaking there. Um, so I see that as kind of tied to this because um, it's using um, concepts that people can agree are worthy. We want to, people to be relatively safe in any situation, whether it's at work or online. Um, and it's um, manipulating that um, to fulfil a political benefit. Um, one way that they do this in the NetSafe code and other and, and in other similar places online is um, that they do not separate um, things like child sex abuse material from um, issues of misinformation or trolling or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That makes it really difficult for people to argue against it because so what you're highlighting there is yeah. is cases where there is indisputable harm caused yeah and 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 areas where there is very disputable harm caused you know no, notions that that just very no one could could disagree with but, you know, child pornography and and gross violence and that kind of thing uh with with using the wrong gender pronoun or advancing exactly. a, a perspective of gender that others don't agree with I was just going to say that there's a slightly earlier stage question that once we get drawn into arguing about whether harm should be permitted or whether there's real harm, we've already lost because it's indisputable that free speech causes harm. The the question, it's never, never not caused harm if it was punchy and pertinent. I mean, thousands, millions of pious Catholics have been deeply hurt and had their faith, which is valuable to them, really affected mm-hmm. by the eventual disclosure of, of priest's pederasty and the persistence of the people who 
who um, have up this exposed sport. it and have gone back on it. That, that's hurtful, and it's hurted it's hurt a lot of innocent people, and it's probably hurt innocent priests who've come under suspicion, uh, as well as those who 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 probably should have been pursued. So it, there's almost no category of serious speech that can't end up causing harm to people if you define harm as upset feelings, um, disturbed worldview, um, you know, sleepless nights and anxiety. <clears throat> All of those things come from uh, prophets of doom and people who aren't. George Orwell has just been declared in Northampton uh, as, needing, <laughs> as needing trigger warnings. Now, when I read the reasoning, it's perfectly rational under the new view that people should be kept safe from feeling unhappy. Because 1984 is a very disturbing picture of the world that's emerging. And if you're sensitive to the decline of, 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 of traditional freedoms and culture of, of your society and its confusion, he is causing great harm. But we always have acknowledged that the reason for free speech being a preeminent value is that the harms avoided by enabling exposure, by enabling free debate, by enabling the challenge of accepted of accepted um, values are, are much more valuable to us. They're always than preserving That's people's true. feelings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I just jump in there and say yeah, ahead, um, that that actually yeah, that also brings attention to the plus size nature nature of this because um, not everyone's feelings are protected. So um, mm, mm. Stephen has yep. highlighted, um, for example, another university one where they're they're protecting them against um, Orwell. Um, in my experience, it's been um, people being protected against hearing the realities of biological sex. Um, however, if someone like me um, decided that my feelings were really hurt by what the other side was saying, no one is jumping in. To, to protect me um, and that shows that um, it is the accepted consensus positions of the elites that um, have their views and their feelings protected. Uh, those of us who challenge uh, those perspectives do not have our um, speech and our feelings protected. The NetSafe code just drips with the kind of condescension or smugness. It, it pours out all these desiderata, these desirables that are really matters of courtesy and good manners. And there's always been in free societies a strong distinction between the rules that are enforced by morality and social reputation and where there will be a cost if you breach them, but it will not be the state's coercive power that's invoked. Mm. What we will get now is NetSafe saying, oh, this isn't the same kind because it's a voluntary code. Ah, yes, but it's being done at the same time as the Prime Minister's Christchurch call and the hate speech proposals. And it's actually because of the dominant power of the of the platforms that it, it's going to get a consensus of. It's actually a conspiracy to create, um, if, if you like, law that is everything but law. Mm. It's the sort of thing that results in competition law where competitors competitor big business um each of them doing lawfully what they are there to do which is maximize their, their you know their profit and their reputation 
once they start conspiring together, it becomes dangerous. And mm. in my view, w we should have no apology for opposing uh, codes like this because they are conspiracies by the establishment to keep the rude and, and the rude and scoffing multitude at bay and to justify um, ensuring their ideology or religious values or or um, idealism is, is prevails and others are squelched. Well, and within that, there's something that is profoundly anti-democratic within passing what is essentially legislation by another name through a code like this, isn't there? In that it would become... Um, condemnable and and, um, and you could easily be removed or cancelled online for saying certain things that anywhere else would be protected and perfectly legal. So this these two standards end up emerging. What does that mean then for our law and the way that they would then be considered um, in, in court or something like that, Stephen? How would this then actually over time potentially progress into something that is enforceable? Well, we've already got bits of it. I mean, the National Party brought in the woeful digital harassment bill, which <laughs> abandoned the, the the standard that had been you know, evolved over centuries, where defamation law was your protection against um, the, the jungle. The, the, it was the protection of the view that you should be able to expect when people say things in public, they'll take reasonable care to make sure it's true. Because if they don't, they could have to pay an awful lot. About it's about people. They could have to pay an awful lot out, and the lawyers will get them. Well, unfortunately, the the judges have gutted defamation law. It is now a threat to. Um, you can still use gagging writs to threaten news media, but essentially, for someone who's been lied about to get through a defamation case is probably going to cost something like five times the amount that you can win, likely to win. Mm. The, the very naive senior judges have cut down awards and ignored the fact that the, the Rolls-Royce processes that they insist on allow the person with a deep pocket to just exhaust the other side. So we've lost that counter. And of course, I think I, I understand ordinary people saying, well, I see awful things being said in social media, there ought to be a remedy. Well, I agree. Uh, it was defamation. There ought to be a remedy. But NetSafe has come up with um, a set of proposals that will be immediately grabbed and used, misused by the powerful against those who, who, who they don't like. NetSafe is also highly politicised. Having tried to go through them myself, um, uh, especially um, before I engaged um, a, a defamation lawyer, I had to go through them um, in order to get basically like a, a proof that I'd gone through them. Um, and uh, they're it's just incredibly unworkable because um, the people working there, and I think their entire ethos, is formulated around the way of looking at the world um, that the people who um, tend to be the worst attackers online um, inhabit. And so um, they also have a, um, a hell of a lot of connections through um, central government and it becomes a useless entity because it only serves those in power. Um, well, it's it a doesn't... question of only a, a certain type, a, a certain form of speech, a certain substance, yeah. having access to justice. And beyond that, you are incorrect, and so you shouldn't be allowed to say that. 
yeah, exactly. Um, it's it's very scary, and I think last week I was going on about power quite a lot, but that is what's really the issue here um, with any of these things that we are talking about, is that free speech is our only ability to challenge power, and so they are just constantly trying to undermine that, trying to um, reduce the opportunities that we have to, to speak. Um, you know, the the example that Stephen led with, I had down to to use as well because it's so clear that um you know we were told that um it was a conspiracy and people were booted off Facebook and Twitter for saying covid came from a lab and now we know that it's widely accepted that that's what's happened um mm-hmm. it's it's I challenge the idea of misinformation because often there's a power hierarchy which is determining what is fact and what is fiction if they say, if they say we were always at war with Eurasia, then we were. Yeah, whether it's <laughs> whether it's malicious and conspiratorial or not, the mm. simple fact of the matter is, as soon as you have one power that is able to suppress information or suppress perspective, whether they mean to or not, it's really by the by. At that point you will end up having misinformation emerge from that. And so that's really the perverse irony, I think, in this. As soon as you shut down free speech, and, and you know, you may be saying we're shutting down misinformation or disinformation, actually it is at that point you allow the, the manipulation of information to emerge all the more. And, and, you know, something you've talked about quite a lot, Stephen, is the fact that free speech is a very humble enterprise. It, it says there's lots of stuff that we don't know. We don't even know that we don't know it. And so that's why let's let everyone come to the table. Let's let everyone say their piece. And a lot of it may be wrong. As you've pointed out, a lot of it may even be harmful. But when we do that, at that point, the best argument ultimately will prevail. It's a very humble but hope-filled Enterprise now, Stephen. The- let's let's think. Let's think of a few of those things that go that go far wider. For thirty years, it was orthodoxy that butter and fat were the reason for our heart problem. And if you'd had someone who was out there trying to blow the whistle on sugar instead of butter, they would have probably been shut down under this code, or could have easily been shut down by the medical establishment because they had all persuaded themselves that it was butter and it was fat. And so we've got this enormous range of fat-free and all the nonsense products that are being sold as low-fat and all the rest of it. But it's pretty clear now that cholesterol and the, the, the health problems were far more associated with the replacement for butter, which was sugar. And I just use that because I know from the whole of my time as an adult Butter, had, butter and fats and fatty meats have and have been the enemy to the entire medical establishment, and now that's been turned on its head. We just ought to be humble about yeah. what we think is is um, is wrong and what is misinformation. Now, Stephen, the, the code does um, make reference, at least in a number of places, to the freedom of expression and the fact that this is a fundamental right, but then it really goes on to completely push that aside. How do you think uh, this contradiction, because th- that's really what it is, how, how can they proceed with this contradiction in mind, with this lip service, but really then undermining the most basic sense of the freedom of expression in the most important place in the public square contemporarily? 
are they aware of this uh, of this contradiction, or is it like what you said before, putting a trigger warning on 1984, something that's profoundly ironic, but that is lost on them in many ways? Look, I think there'll be a range. There'll be some who are absolutely conscious of what they're doing, but they have always decided that the ends justify the means, and suppressing uh, you know the people they think are are boorish and, and wrong and should be disregarded is more important to them than what they'll say is some abstract idea of free speech. And and to my shock, because I came from the left, um, I, I, so much so that I started my OE um, in communist China um, seeking to live on a commune. But I came from the left and we were absolutely convinced that the threats to free speech always came from the right, which was the establishment, and that the only way um, we could have a real democracy where our left views were got any, got any audience was by defending free speech. What stuns me now is how completely that um, inheritance has gone and that the left are now far more, far more dangerous in many ways because, the, because as I've discovered, the right really does believe there are some things that are fundamental principles and the cost is too high in sacrificing them. And one of them, I think, is free speech. Um, even the the religions have been persuaded to see free speech as a value they should support, despite in most societies and most eras throughout history, um, priests and pr- priests have been amongst the most fervent um, burners of heretics. But what we have now is an alliance between those who feel um, moral superiority and who have long had a tradition that the end justifies the means. That was a fundamental part of our left view, who now see um, suppressing suppressing unwelcome speech as just, you know, you, you can't make omelets without breaking eggs. They, they're indifferent to it. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't. The, the, the technicalities of the NetSafe proposal are almost irrelevant. You could put words in there that required them to say that free speech meant more and must mean more, but it'll actually it's in the, in the hands of the people who will be exercising these powers. All they mm-hmm. want is an excuse, mm-hmm. and there's tons of those excuses there. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something that this what what has to be done is ignore what NetSafe are doing and instead go to Parliament and get some principles that override and that will govern the application of these kinds of agreements, just the way that competition law overrides cosy agreements that are reached between people who want monopoly profits by you know, conspiracy cartels amongst com- people who should be competitors. So I, I, you know, it's right that we put the submission. It's right that we try and draw attention to it. It's right that we suggest some uh, extra some changes, but the whole thing is infused with this. And if I, if I use another example, when I was an MP, Radio New Zealand and TVNZ used the requirement for balance to um, ensure that coverage of Act criminal justice policy was uh, almost non-existent. And that, that was my area, six years. In fact, most of the stuff in our pot criminal justice policy came from Tony Blair's uh, Labour Party. They'd done an awful lot of thinking about social disorder and and an awful lot of thinking about how to replicate 
what New York achieved and, you know, cutting the murder rate by 15 times and all that. And I used to pick it up, but it was always just described as far right. And then the balance requirement come in. If they couldn't get anyone from the government uh, to to comment on a proposal from us or for a statement by me, then they would say, oh, we can't uh, run it because mm-hmm. we haven't managed to achieve balance. So it doesn't, it's almost, as I say, they will use almost any aspect, however worthy and nice it sounds, to achieve their objective. And to me, our purpose as um, as the Free Speech Union has to be in the long run to get um, strengthening of the laws, the overriding laws that will govern sort of um, collusion. Yeah, and what you're pointing out there is is you know based on parliamentary supremacy and and the rule of law. But many people would claim that parliament doesn't create culture; culture creates parliament. And the reason we are having these conversations and the reason the um, the debate is emerging around whether speech is even a good thing is because culture has been influenced in a way that that means we focus on notions of harm, however abstract that would be. And you're probably engaging at the forefront of this cultural pursuit of a celebration of free speech and all that it can entail. But given your experience, you've also been victimized by this kind of mentality. Um, This code doesn't include any reference to an appeals process or, or a way of actually defending your name if your material is considered hate speech or misinformation or anything like that. How do you think that would have um, impacted you? You know, as, as a spokeswoman for Speak Up for Women, you've had a lot of material drawn into question, but you've been able to challenge that. Under this code, there would be no grounds for actually appealing that. What, what are the implications there? Yeah, exactly. Um, the... Uh... I, I definitely feel that personally this will affect me. Uh, like, and just like when the hate speech laws were announced, um, a whole lot of um, the kind of censorious types on New Zealand Twitter celebrated that they'd finally be able to get me was was um, uh, kind of how they saw it. And it shows that uh, it's not about protection, it's about punishment, it's about getting the people saying the wrong things. Um, and this is similar. Um, and I think in regards to, to the issue you just spoke about and the the way that the the code talks about freedom of expression and freedom of speech, I actually view that really cynically. And I think that it is a deliberate um, tactic because they know that the only reasonable kind of um, objections they're going to get are probably from people like us who are coming at it from a freedom of speech perspective. Um, And so they um, seek to kind of hit us off at the pass um, by saying, oh, no, we've considered that, we've said all this stuff. Um, But really, like you say, it's lip service. And um, it it is considered at best as one consideration. At worst... It's not actually considered, and it's something that they can just say was considered. Um, so, as an individual, and um, and also as part of a group who seeks to discuss something that actually, if if um, research and data shows us the majority of the population agrees with, um, which is that um, you know you can't actually literally change sex. Some people 
um, wish to present themselves um, in the gendered stereotypes of the opposite sex, and that's absolutely fine, but it doesn't mean that they change sex. That kind of view will see me booted off um, social media um, and potentially um, it will limit that conversation because um, as, as I've found, um, I get I get told all the time by other women that they would speak out, but they've seen what's happened to me. Because of the chilling effect there that you're talking about, self-censorship ends up becoming one of the greatest enemies of free speech, isn't it? That That it's often not even these explicit things that end up removing speech, but it's the threat of them that means people do it themselves. And, and Absolutely. They don't, look, 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 Jonathan and Annie, I, I think there's a, I mean, I don't disagree with anything you say, but it's much more simple to me as a lawyer. You, the, the law deals with things at the margin. Our margins have been compressed immeasurably now. Mm. Yeah. The people, the, the Auckland Council, uh, or the Auckland, I think it was the people in charge of the Auckland facilities, seriously told us uh, that the health and safety reason for not permitting um, the gender critical people to um, speak was because if they used the Auckland Council rooms, those rooms would thereafter be a health and safety risk to their staff who would be who would feel that they were not safe premises. It's a kind of it, frankly, it's a kind of view of a superstitious view of the of the infectious or the um, the, the. There's almost a the, spiritualism associated with it, isn't there? Well, it's a highly it's a highly ludicrous kind of view that somehow the the bricks and mortar get contaminated by these impure thoughts that might be expressed within them. Now. In a healthy society, which I think we were only, say, 15 years ago, that would have been lampooned mercilessly. Official position would have dared utter such tosh. That, that would have been seized upon, and there would have been a mockery of it, a satire that would that is the, amongst the most healthy reactions. Yeah, you make really good points there, Stephen. We are operating in a world that maybe 10 years ago we... we would have just been floored if we'd been told that this was um, the parameters of acceptability and um, and and how um, people would behave. So I do think you're right, and I do think that in theory and ideally we shouldn't have to make these arguments. When we look at how power has been consolidated, the reason why we don't have satirical pieces coming out to um, lampoon these ridiculous decisions is because um, government, uh, public service, media, um, even NGOs are all kind of singing from the same hymn sheet. So whereas once um, media in particular had, had you know, um, quite strong values around um, kind of interrogating the government or um being impartial and those kind of things. Now they see themselves with a more moral, um, virtuous kind of role in society in which they preach the good word. <laughs> um, exactly. And so yep. we we basically are now 
unable to talk in the terms that we should be able to talk in, which are very plain and saying this is absolutely ridiculous. Um, and instead, we have to argue our points on their playing field because they're controlling the game. Um, and it is incredibly frustrating. Um, but I don't know what else to do. <laughs> Annie, I think the, the illustrations that you're using, the hymn sheets and the, and the good word, are very well placed because, um, you know, as, as a Christian myself, the, 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 I have great shame in the way that the church has over history controlled and suppressed. And I think it is just very much counter to the fundamentals of enlightened thinking and, and, and really the tenets of, of our faith. But I think nowadays, again, irony abounds. There's a very religious nature. We, we talked about it before, this, the superstitious or spiritual aspect that comes, you know, in the way people perceive this. And, and it is really quite absurd that there, there are these orthodoxies that are emerging that are in total contradiction to really the orthodoxies that is, have existed previously. But but they're, they're sacred. And, and really, we have, we've invented new sacred cows that, that we cannot question, we cannot oppose, we cannot really... Um, Draw to to challenge in any way is to draw the ire of our society, and uh, and, and you know we may think we're at the thin edge of the wedge here, but that, that that's not the case. We've progressed down to this point where, like you say, maybe ten or fifteen years ago, people would have really opposed this. It, it doesn't even occur to them now that it's not correct. And you so know, you know, what, you know, Jonathan, it, it's really um, the truth of it is evidenced by the fact that the most bitter hatred from the the uh, controlling elite is for the competing religion which they fear might still that's uh, right ha- have a have a contr- have some sort the of claim on lay somewhere the, in the souls of man <laughs> yeah it is and and they and they i mean but that was even when i was an mp in select committee there'd be this feigned respect for the in select and submissions on you know bills that had moral elements there'd be a feigned respect, at least a courtesy, for the representatives who came before us earnestly and sincerely trying to advance a traditional um, religious view of morality. As soon as the door had gone, they had already assumed that we, the insiders, the elite, were of a mind and there would be um, absolute absolute disrespect, uh, mockery, for the people who'd just been there. I just I remember thinking, what what is it about religious people? Because they tended to vote for the left. Usually there would be, I've been an atheist for many years, but I would wait for one or two of the known Christians to intervene and, and put an end to it. And they would sit silent and, and polite. And I think, a, I think a big problem here is that the tradition of activism has been lost mm. by by... Um, the genuinely religious and by the uh, the right, the tradition of activism has now given a confidence in their right to suppress to the left. Um, it's not even polite to see it in left-right terms, but in we can call it woke or anti-woke terms. And I think that the submission on the NetSafe thing is properly done. People should put in submissions. They shouldn't let it pass without notice. But ultimately. This will end up and only be uh, our, def- our freedoms will only be defended when people are prepared to 
terrify uh, those who would who would oppress them. And mm. it, it has it has ever been thus. You know, they need to keep a register of the people who are abusing power, and they need to say. You're telling, you're essentially saying that those you don't like will never be employed in positions of influence. All right. If that's the way the game's played, we have to do it. So that when there's a change in the, in the, um, political wheel, for example, those who, who currently dominate, um, state media and who have been intolerant, they should be overtly ejected for their intolerance. And it's, it's going to need practical, practical um, exercises of power that say if this is the way you show the, play the game and exercise power, it's going to hurt you more than it hurts us. Unfortunately, um, I fear that any change at the next election will not be much of a change um, in terms of that relationship with the media. Um, I think we are going to have a, a situation of two sides of the same coin. Um, and so I think also pressure needs to be applied towards anyone who thinks they might be government in 2023 that what is wanted is not more of the same. Yeah, I, I think I, it might need another three years. I don't know. But the the contempt of the elite for ordinary people um, is so palpable that I, I, I continue to hope that we can get a change that doesn't involve the kind of polarisation that has emerged in the US yeah. where, yeah, where yeah. people will support Trump however detestable he is simply because he's not simply because he's not he's against the guys who, who have been oppressing them. He was a protest vote and I can totally yeah. sympathise with that. Yep. Um, well, we've, we've strayed a little bit from the NetSafe coach. That's, that's what's great about these long-form pieces where uh, we, we can come as a podcast, look at the work that the Free Speech Union is doing uh, on the NetSafe consultation at the moment, but really unpack some of the, the far-reaching implications of this code and a lot of the associated elements. So thank you, uh, Annie and Stephen. This has been a really interesting conversation, and I'm sure many of our listeners have been wanting to jump in and put in their piece as well. So I uh, hope it's provoked some thinking on the other end. We do encourage our supporters to use our free speech submission portal to put a submission in to NetSafe. Uh, at the moment, we are doing what we can to oppose the steps that have been taken to promote censorous activity online. And, and we really need others to stand with us. So if you go to www.freespeechsubmission.com, there is a very easy portal there, which takes uh, less than three minutes to put your submission into NetSafe. Our basic call is to leave legal speech free. This code will effectively outlaw a lot of speech that while technically um, no legislation has been put against it online it will no longer be protected and, and that's not uh, acceptable to us so stand with us in opposing that copy in the minister of justice and keep him up to date with the number of people who actually do not agree with NetSafe's decision in this space but for now this is the end of our conversation today Annie and Stephen it's been great to have you guys and, and we'll definitely do it again sometime Thanks. thank you bye Annie. Cheers, Thanks for listening to the Free Speech Union podcast. If you would like to learn more about us or find out how you can get involved or support, you can head on over to fsu.nz or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Kakiti anō.